do not have to be from the South to be Southern. You just have to live here and like it. Matt! Hey, Matt! Come here! We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. Tall tales, personal tales, fairy tales, folk tales, historical tales, and more. I'm Sam Payne, your host. It's such a pleasure for me every time I get to be with you and bring these stories into your home and into your heart. Now, on today's episode of the show, you know, life can be a real roller coaster. No matter what happens, we know we're going to have days when things are hectic, difficult to handle, challenges to overcome, hurdles to jump, and, uh, you know, a lot of those things, of course, will become good stories one day. But in the meantime, they can be a little tough to swallow sometimes, tough to handle. And today's stories are here to remind you that no matter what happens, the sun always follows darkness. It's the way of things. It tends that way in any case. And we got a great lineup of stories for you today, full of laughter and hope and positive messages. You're going to hear a story from Catherine Conant about a difficult year she and her daughter faced and what reminded them that they would be okay. You're going to hear Michael Reno Harrell with a song about some of his favorite things about living where he lives, a song called Southern Suggestions. And you'll hear a funny tale from Anthony Bircher called The Day I Fell Out of Love with My First Car. There's something in this lineup today that's going to put a smile on your face, cheer up your heart, and it's all coming up on the apple seed. In fact, we're going to begin with a story from Catherine Conant. This was recorded live at the Timpanogos Storytelling Festival, largest storytelling festival in the West, bringing great storytelling to the concert hall and the classroom and the festival tent for more than 30 years now. Here's Catherine Conant with a story about a difficult year that she and her daughter faced and, again, what reminded them that they would be okay. Here's Catherine on the apple seed. My mother always used to wonder. She used to say, I don't know what it is you do. And I said, well, Mom, I'm a storyteller, and I teach storytelling to people who want to figure out how to incorporate it into their lives for any variety of reasons. And then she'd have me write it out on a three-by-five card. And then she'd read it to my aunts and uncles, and they'd go, I still don't understand what she does. And so I said, just tell them I'm in communications. (laughs) And it worked. When I was growing up, the chain of authority went like this. My parents, my aunts, my uncles, my grandparents, my godparents, the parents of friends, assorted neighbors, teachers, and then down at the bottom, me. I always had questions. They always had answers, although it was a variation on a theme. What? No, you cannot do that. You are not old enough. Don't you think you are a little too old to be doing that? (laughs) It was a no-win situation. But they promised me that when I grew up and had children, that they would have questions and I would have the answers. But when my daughter was born, I discovered I had been misinformed. (laughs) Oh, I had lots of answers, and she was not even slightly interested in asking a single question. Nope. When she was four years old, she said, I am going outside to learn how to ride my bike. Stay in the house. 
and don't look out the window. And so I hid behind the curtains and I watched her and she fell and she fell and she fell and she learned. And the lesson I learned is I was never going to really be able to teach her much. Which meant when she was old enough to get her driver's license, I decided that was not a hill I was willing to die on. (laughs) So I wrote out a pretty substantial check to the driving school, and, and I would say, on the whole, they did a moderately okay job. <laughs> and she did get her driver's license, and I bought her a big old slow station wagon in the belief that when the someone you love so deeply gets behind the wheel of two-plus tons of steel and glass and gasoline, <clears throat> excuse me, armed mostly with the belief that they were immortal, well, that's just an act of faith. Her first accident was purely inexperience. She didn't understand how much time the oncoming car needed before she made a sharp left-hand turn. No one was hurt, but the car came home on the back of a flatbed truck. Her second accident was definitely not her fault. She had no way of knowing the buck was going to attempt to leap over the hood of her car. Almost. Car came home behind a tow truck with the grill stuffed with fur. Her third accident was her friend Jacob's fault, although he is a bright boy. But when she rolled down the window and said, do I have enough room to back up? He said, oh, yeah, come on, come on. Oh, wait. Apparently not noticing he was standing next to a stone wall. And the car came home under its own power, but now the front and the back were equally smashed. Well, that was the time in our lives where she was getting ready to finish high school and move out into college. And like so many other high school seniors, looking for the perfect college. You know, the one that just was going to make, that was the very beginning of a smooth sailing life forever. Yeah, that didn't work. (laughs) Right around that time, her dad decided he was going to leave us, and he did. And suddenly, that child who did not have any questions was full of questions I did not have answers for. Is he coming back? I need to know, is he coming back? Honey, I I don't know. Well, we're not moving, right? I mean, I am absolutely not moving. You tell me we're not moving. I can't promise anything. So September rolled around, and if it wasn't the perfect college, it was a college. And we packed up the car, and I drove her there. I dropped her off at the dorm to get her key, parked the car, picked up an armload of things to carry back, and when she met me at the door, she said... Uh Uh-oh, wrong college. What? She said, wrong college, I can't go to this college. I said, "Uh uh-oh, non-refundable tuition. Our eyes locked, and she blinked first. She stayed. She was not happy, but she stayed. And when the final exam of the semester was done, I drove there, 
packed up the car and brought her home. And she was going to go to the second semester as a day student and look for the real perfect college. That winter, it was like our souls were made out of dry tinder. A misplaced look of a careless word and we would erupt in flames of an argument. It was exhausting. One dark February night, I opened the refrigerator, took a look at what was composting on the shelves, <laughs> closed the door and said, get your coat. We're going to go eat pizza. I drove. <laughs> we went to my favorite, our favorite pizza place and we came in, parked out in the parking lot, went inside, sat down. I looked at her and I thought, if I look half as bad as she does, we are in trouble. But I am the person who's supposed to have the answers. So I took a big, deep breath and I said, well, you just listen to me, young lady. You are the great-grandchildren, you, you are the great-granddaughter of Italian immigrants, three weeks below the waterline, locked in steerage. Your grandparents lived through the Depression, through World War II. I myself lived through Watergate and Baywatch. You can do this. And then I looked at her. It wasn't working. And I said, honey, I'll be honest. Nobody knew this was going to happen. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just not what we thought life was going to be like right now, is it? But I promise you this. We will be okay. We will be okay. We will be okay. And I said it again and again and again until even I began to believe it. And then we felt better and we put on our coats and we paid our check and we went out to the, to the parking lot. And as we approached our car it was clear that something was terribly wrong. The entire right rear quarter panel of the car was accordioned to the back door, and it just kind of hung out there in the cold winter air. And it was not like that when we went in. We took one look, and we were, all our bravado went away, and we were like two peasants over an open grave. She went down on all fours and began weeping and retching, and I just stood there and I thought, well, that is it. The insurance company had already said there was nothing in it for them to continue to be a good neighbor. <laughs> so, yeah, I did have insurance, but it was $17 a month less than the mortgage. And for one moment, more than anything else in the world, I just wanted to turn around walk off into the dark and keep on walking. Or as they say when you live on a coastal state, I just wanted to keep walking till my hat floated. But I couldn't do that. She was my girl. So I scooped her up and I got her up on her feet and I said, I think I can drive it. I think we will be okay. And I steered her towards the passenger side of the front seat and I walked around to the front of the car. I did not need to look at that a second time. I got around to the driver's side. I had my keys in my hand. And for just a minute, I closed my eyes and I leaned my head down on the roof of the car and I said, oh, I really need some help. 
I do, I am out of money, I am out of ideas, I am out of energy, I am out. I could hear her on the other side of the car crying. And she said, Mom, Mom. What? This isn't our car. <laughs> this is not my car. I don't know who, whose car it is, but hey, good luck to you, sir. It is not my car. And she pointed, and there it was, absolutely fine, one row over. I can tell you, miracles do happen. We sat down on the parking lot, and we laughed until we cried. And then we got into the car, and she wiped her eyes, the way women do when they have mascara, just a little bit at a time. And she said, you know what? We are going to be all right. I know it. We are going to be all right. And we were. She finished up that semester. That fall, she went off to the genuine perfect college where she graduated three years later, cum laude. And as I speak, she lives in the Southwest where she is a clinical speech pathologist. She has her own home. She has her own car. She has her own car insurance. <laughs> but in truth, I miss her. We're so far apart. But we talk on the phone a lot. Well, I just spoke to her last night. And sometimes she has questions and I have answers. And sometimes I have questions and she has answers. And sometimes, like these days, we both have questions, but we're not sure about any answers. But we always have each other. Catherine Conant here on The Appleseed. A pleasure to bring you that story. And there's a lot more coming up. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to have you with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, a moment ago we heard a story from Catherine Conant, a story about a difficult year and the hope that came somewhere in the difficulties. Pleasure to bring you that tale on The Appleseed. Coming up, a lot more stories from Bobby Norfolk. You're going to hear from Michael Reno Harrell and Anthony Bircher. But first, how about an entry in the Radio Family Journal? The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. My mother was always hatching plans. I'd come into the kitchen of our tiny house and I'd see her at the kitchen table sketching on a piece of paper what looked like a floor plan, and I'd ask her to tell me about what she was drawing. And she'd explain that it was an idea for the house. She'd point with the tip of her pencil to the place where she planned to add bedrooms for each of us. We all shared a room the way the house was currently arranged. Or the second bathroom off the main bedroom. Or the picture window that would look out on the mountains. Those drawings were always very magical to look at. Wonderful to dream about. And I'd ask her when we were going to make the things she drew on these papers filled with plans. Her answer was always the same. When our ship comes in, when our ship comes in, we'll build these things. My mom was a planner, and the truth is, 
When I left home for college, the little house was pretty much the same as it had been all the time I was growing up. No extra bedrooms, no second bathroom, no picture window. But some of my mom's plans were different. They flew off the planning pages and into the lives of, well, of everyone in town. I'll explain. My mom had this dream of a citywide music camp. For a week in the summer, families would carve out a week together, and each morning of that week they'd gather at the city park to have breakfast together, mostly donuts and juice. And then every member of every family would go to their morning music class, some music experience held in someone's home or backyard in town. You might go sing in a youth choir, or you might sign up to be in a short musical theater production, or you might go and hear a recital from a world-renowned pianist in the living room of one of your neighbors. There were a dozen experiences to choose from, and then everyone would get back together for a musical lunch, say, grilled hot dogs by a swimming pool with Handel's water music playing in the background, or maybe a short hike to a waiting picnic lunch in a bluegrass band. Then, in the afternoon, everyone would go to their afternoon music classes. And finally, in the evening, everyone would gather for a concert. This would happen every day for a week, in my mom's plan. And then, at the end of the week, there would be a festival all afternoon in which everyone performed what they'd been learning during the week. The children's folk dance class would perform, and the adult Baroque choir, and the teen musical theater troupe, and the town orchestra, and the hayride band. And then, after a week's worth of music, Music, everyone would go home and look forward to doing it again next summer. It was an enormous plan, but it happened. It happened, and it was called Music Fusion, the musical summer camp of all musical summer camps. One music fusion year, I acted and sang in an abbreviated version of You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown. Another music fusion year, my brother and I sang Brush Up Your Shakespeare from Kiss Me Kate. My dad directed the Baroque Choir for Grown Ups. My brother's pal Jared Crapo wrote a theme song for the whole music camp. Strong hikers climbed the local mountain peaks with international piano competitors in from China, guided by the local piano teacher. Lesser hikers hiked the gentle trail to Schoolhouse Springs, where we had sandwiches and a cowboy crooner saying, Hey, good looking, what you got cooking? How's about cooking something up with me? To my mom. It happened, this plan of my mother's, and the whole town was filled with music fusion for a week in the summer for a couple of summers running. None of us will ever forget it. Well, many years have passed since then. My mother walks every day with Cosmo, the old black Labrador that she and my stepdad rescued from the shelter a dozen years ago. But her life has generally mellowed into a state of gentle rest, a state of reflection, and I imagine, I have to imagine, that she may sometimes think of her life in terms of those drawings she made at the kitchen table all the time I was a child. Those drawings that never got turned into bedrooms or bathrooms or picture windows. I know I'd tend that way. I know there would be days when I could only see what I wanted to do but hadn't done. It's awfully tempting sometimes to measure our lives in terms of the plans we made that were not realized. In those moments, I hope she and that all of us can have the sensitivity to hear the chorus of voices telling the story of the plans that did come into being, springing from the page to fill the world around us with the kind of life and magic that only we possess, leading the people we love on the adventure to which only we know the way, helping the people around us to find and sing 
the song that only we can inspire. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. And before we get to a little song by Michael Reno Harrell, here's a conversation with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways through the tales that we tell again and again around the kitchen table or the living room or the campfire, through the things we see on screen or the songs that we allow into our hearts, through the books that we read, and increasingly through the things we hear on the radio and in podcasts. It's my pleasure to uh, welcome into the studio uh, the co-host of The Lisa Show, produced by BYU Radio. You can hear that show uh, just about every day in the morning, and you can also uh, uh, Google The Lisa Show podcast to find something new just about every day. You can listen whenever you like on your mobile device. And Richie T., Richie Stedman, is here with me. It's great to have you, Richie. Thank you for letting me be back. You know, you uh, have brought to us sort of an exciting introduction to, to, to podcasts that families will enjoy. Absolutely. And you've got another one for us today. You know, I do, and you probably know about this one, but I just, for those that may not, uh, <laughs> I just want to onboard this. So many times when we think about entertaining our kids, yeah. we're like, we're the adults, we entertain our kids, right? <laughs> we're responsible, we should do this. Right. But what we don't do is we don't give enough opportunity for kids to be able to entertain kids. Right. Do you know which podcast I'm talking about? Uh, Keep going. Okay. So this, the idea behind this podcast is they asked for children to submit their stories and then our group of core actors and then they add in famous actors that we see from screen, whether it be big or small, and they perform these stories yeah. for people to be uh, to be able to listen to where, whenever and wherever they want. I'm talking, of course, about the Story Pirates podcast, oh, yeah. which, is, which is so great. Yeah. And of course, has a component in live shows, too. They yeah. travel the country doing live shows as well. And these wonderful collaborations between kids and adults are just... They're, they, they're just killer. And I have to tell you, this was one that I was turned on to in kind of a unique way. Uh, I have a friend who uh, just started posting online, guys, I'm going to be I'm going to be one of the story pirates. And I was like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and so went online and quickly found just episode upon episode of amazing stories. And again, written yeah. by children to entertain children. And then, of course, if kids say the darndest things didn't teach us anything, <laughs> like when kids you know, put their mind to creativity, yeah. we as adults, whether because uh, we remember that time of our lives or just because it's genuinely entertaining, yeah. we are entertained by it as well. For example, may I tease you with some past uh, voice talent tease from this? Away. Claire Danes, yeah, <laughs> uh, John Oliver, Dax Shepard, uh, just some of the big names. Yeah. Um, other other folks, Alex Brightman, Paul F. Tompkins. Like these are individuals who lend their voice to these amazing stories. Yeah. And we just get to kind of sit back and go, well, I would never have maybe expected that from that person. Or yeah. they lend their voice in a different way that we go, you know, that that crazy old whatever sounds like <laughs> like Claire Day. Is that yeah. 
Oh, that is Claire it Danes. Is Claire Danes. And, One of the things such I love, a fun adventure. You know, we see a lot of you mentioned kids say the darndest things yeah. and things like that. You know, these are really exercises in looking at the cute or funny things that kids say and sort of capitalizing on the kidness of them. Or, <laughs> or there's there always seems to be kind of a wink at the audience that says, "Look at this silly stuff." Right. You know? But with story pirates, what you get is. A renowned adult professionals taking seriously the writing of kids. Yeah. You know, treating it with care and 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 honoring it in much the way that they would ri- honor the writing of anybody that they work with. Well, and that and that's such the magic of it, right? Yeah. The sincerity of it. Uh, as they try and find the meaning. You know, we as adults we like to read into things and in subtext. And sometimes kids, when they write something, they're like, no, it's just that. Yeah. And so to see <laughs> and hear uh, most especially the these, as you mentioned, professional people yeah. really try and interpret and take from page to ear yeah what these kids are trying to say it's it's fun it is just a, a fun adventure and to the point that as you mentioned like being able to go and to to see story pirates live yeah to be able to see them face to face is just another amazing i know that's not a podcast so hopefully you'll lend me some grace sure, sure. but that's just another storytelling opportunity yeah. and story hearing opportunity that i just love yeah it takes it 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 gives credence to the work that kids are doing, yeah. right? Not just sort of stumbling onto the funny kid, funny things that kids might say, but credence to the work that kids are doing. It reminds me, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, mm. you know? And my dad, my dad, he came to me and he said, listen, why don't you write something and we'll go down to the local grocery store where they have a Xerox machine and we'll run <laughs> off 50 copies of it and we'll and you can you know take metal brads and you know poke them through the pages to make with you know like construction paper covers and things like that and you can pull them around in your red wagon and sell them to the neighbors. Yeah, look at that. And I and I never did it. Oh. I never I never did it. I thought, "No, I want to be like a real writer who gets published by a publishing company, you know." And my dad was onto something that I didn't see the value of, hmm. you know. And I I, I, now, to this day, I kind of regret not having gone down to the grocery store and run off 50 copies of something and sold it to the neighbors. You know, My dad understood that the work that I was interested in doing was worth taking seriously mm-hmm. and that it, that, that it was that I didn't have to wait uh, yeah. to, to create something that was of value. And that's the, one of the real cool lessons of the story pirates, right, is, is it takes the work of these kids and doesn't say, boy, this will be really good when they grow up. You right. know, it says this is this is worth embracing and listening to now. And we're going to put not just professional talent, but recognizable A-list talent behind it to make uh, something really magical happen in the audio space. It's just dynamite. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Great for families. Great for yourself. <laughs> Road trips. And there's tons of episodes. So you can be able to. What I like to do is listen to the episode and then try and guess who some of the voices sure. are. <laughs> kind of a fun game on the side. The Story Pirates, of course, is the name of the audio experience. And uh, a pleasure to have Richie with me. Richie, thanks for joining us on the episode. Thank you. Great stories do come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat for a moment with our friend Richie. We'll have him back, we're sure. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear up next from Michael Reno Harrell, a little song called Southern Suggestions. You won't want to miss it here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. 
here's Sam Payne. Such a pleasure to have you with us on today's episode of the show. A moment ago, a chat with Richie Stedman about the wonderful podcast, The Story Pirates. And uh, coming up next, a little song from Michael Reno Harrow. It's a song called Southern Suggestions, and it's a story for anybody who loves the place they live. Here's Michael Reno Harrow on the Appleseed. Ladies and gentlemen, will you please help me welcome Michael Reno Harrell. Thank you all so much for coming today. It's a real honor. I'm from the South. <laughs> Some of you might not have been able to tell now. My family's from the Southern Appalachian Mountains up here in North Carolina. And we go back... We've been, we go back about two million years in the Southern Appalachians. We go all the way back to the North Carolanderthals. I mean, <laughs> we go way back. You do not, how many of you from the South here tonight? How many? All right. Now, how many of you were born in the South of that bunch? Okay. How many of you are not from the South? All right. That's a pretty fair showing for this town. You do not have to be from the South to be Southern. You just have to live here and like it. <laughs> well, we're not talking about Texas now. <laughs> Being Southern is a state of mind, see? We look at things a little bit differently than people from the other part of the country. That's all. See, for instance, we got laws here in the South. We, you know, we don't talk about them a whole lot because... When you think about it, laws are just for about 2% of the people. The people in this room, we don't need laws. We know how to act. We don't need stuff wrote down to tell us how to act. Well, you know. And, and rules. We hate that word rules down here. It's just so confining. We prefer, see, we're more genteel. We prefer the word suggestion. See? Now, for instance, I'll give, you, I'll give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Like, like, over where I come from, I was raised in East Tennessee. Over, okay, let, let's set up a hypothetical situation. Let's say you're sitting in a river in East Tennessee in a john boat fishing. Right? Now, this is, this is what's known as a, a southern suggestion. You're sitting in a john boat fishing. It is suggested that you cast your bait downstream from the boat after lighting the fuse. <laughs> See? Now that's a suggestion and I think a good one. And we got traffic laws here, you know, but, but we prefer to just drive with courtesy. Now I'm leaving Atlanta out of this particular part, but <laughs> say, you're in, say you're in Grayson, Alabama, okay? Grayson, Alabama, four-way stop. Two vehicles approach this four-way stop from one direction and in the opposite direction, and they reach the intersection at the same time. Now, see that we got a southern traffic suggestion that covers that. Which vehicle has the right-of-way? The one with the king cab, see? 
the bigger vehicle got the right away. Now, we do have certain rules. There are certain places where a rule will apply, see, but typically in that situation, you've also got a suggestion that precedes it. For instance, here, we talk like in the New South, it's suggested by some people that eating too much red meat could be bad for you. That's it, see? Some people suggest they, you know, that eating too much red meat could be bad for you. Now, the rule that goes along with that, see, this would be the rule. Eating any green meat is bad for you, see? <laughs> Now, my friend Stover Mason, he had my favorite southern suggestion. He was one of my best friends when I was growing up. When I was 12 years old, Stover Mason was 82. And Stover, we were, we were fox hunting one night and sitting around the fire, and he was philosophizing. And he looked at me and he said, son, he said, I'm going to give you a piece of advice that's going to serve you well in life. And it has. He said, never judge a man until you've walked a mile in his shoes. He said, by then, you're a mile away and you got his shoes. <laughs> It's mustard on hot dogs and ketchup on french fried potatoes. Gravy on biscuits and cornmeal on fried green tomatoes. If you're cooking a pig, you need to start about three in the morning. And if you go to the beach, pay attention to hurricane warning. You don't order grits, they just come anytime you say eggs. Clear fingernail polish when chiggers get a hold of your legs. Don't drink the moonshine unless you know where it was made. And never stand in the sun anytime you can sit in the shade. These aren't rules, it's just some things we figured out To make living easy when you're living here in the South Honeysuckle tastes sweet if you suck the back end of a blossom. And catfish tastes great, but I don't know a soul who eats possum. If you're plowing a garden, a little four tractor will do. Oh, but get a John Deere if you got more than an acre or two. Now an old tractor tire painted white and placed in the yard Makes a quite stunning planter, but don't use a tire from a car See a car tire you tie to a rope and you hang from a tree And tobacco juice works like a champ when you're stung by a bee these aren't rules, it's just some things we figured out To make living easy when you're living here in the South
You all is plural. If it's only one, just say you. It's all right to be Catholic or Mormon or Hindu or Jew. See, the Baptists don't own the South. They just use the name. Iced tea ain't for breakfast and all barbecue ain't the same. Try to eat lunch where the waitresses all call you honey. And maybe one of these days you'll think John Boy and Billy are funny. The fact that people make money bass fishing's amazing. And NASCAR is kicking, Indy cars at car racing. These aren't rules, it's just some things that we figured out To make living easy when you're living here in the South No, these aren't rules, it's just some things that we figured out Now, ain't living easy since you're living here in the South Thank y'all! Thank you so much. Southern Suggestions, a song performed for you by Michael Reno Harrell about loving the place where he lives. If you were to write a song about the place where you live, what are some of the things that it might contain? That might be worth thinking about. We're going to wrap up today with a story called The Day I Fell Out of Love with My First Car. It's a story by Anthony Bircher. I'm going to listen to it with you, but also with our producer, Jeff Simpson. Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you with me. Let's talk about what we're going to hear. I am so excited to listen to a car story. (laughs) And it's going to take us in some fun directions. We've chatted a little bit about high school car stories and other high school stories, right? But yeah, uh, yeah. But this is Anthony Bircher who's going to tell us this story, and and the story has the title, the evocative title of the day I fell out of love with my first car. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories for you that you can share with the people that you love. We're going to listen to this story now. See what it sparks for us. Anthony Bircher on the Appleseed. story is called The Day I Fell Out of Love with My First Car. <laughs> my first car, I loved it. It was a 1974 Ford Pinto. I drove it from 1976 to 1996. I love that car. I still say today, it was one of the best downhill cars ever made. <laughs> little gravity behind you, you're on your way. It had heat every summer, air conditioning every winter. It was a fine car. Now, I drove that car when I attended William and Mary. And they, back then, they had this requirement. They don't have it anymore. It was called the swimming requirement. You had to take a swimming class. I thought that was a really good idea, mainly because I desperately needed a, a class I could get an A in. My GPA needed that help. And so I, every day I'd go to swimming class. Now, what I would do, though, I would drive into campus and go to my morning classes or sleep through them. And then I would go to, my, go to lunch. Then after lunch, I'd get my Pinto drive back to my dorm, change out of all my clothes, just put on my swim trunks, grab my towel, 
go to swimming class, drive to swimming class. It was so easy. I preferred that over carrying a gym bag, having to find a lock in the locker. No, this was so much easier. So one day, I go, go back to the dorm. I change, got my swimsuit on, got my towel, get in the pinto, drive to the gym. I'm thinking, this is the best day ever. First time I ever got a front row spot in front of the gym. I pull in. I say, awesome. I go. I push the button on my seatbelt to let me go. It doesn't let me go. I said, that's weird. That's never done that before. I pushed a couple more times. It doesn't let me go. I'm like, what in the world? And so I said, I'm not going to be beaten by a seatbelt. So I tried crawling out the top. These are bucket seats. There was no way I was getting out of these seats. I said, fine, I'll scooch out the bottom. Worst swimsuit wedgie I ever had trying to come out the bottom of that thing. And finally, I said, I got to figure out what to do. And my friends were coming by the car going, Anthony, you come to class? I'm like, oh, yeah, song on the radio. Remember when we used to sit in the car until the song was over? Those like, song on the radio. And they're like, oh, they kept on going in. I was like, I got to get, I got to break this thing open. In my, now, back then, I played in the band at William & Mary, and my drumsticks were within reach. I reached out. I grabbed a drumstick. I said, that's it for you, seatbelt, and I went to town. Bam, bam, bam. I'm going crazy on that seatbelt. Bam, bam, bam. I look up. There's this whole little crowd of people staring in my window. And so I'm like, song on the radio, dude. Song on the radio. They were so polite. They just backed away and said nothing. Didn't even point out the radio wasn't on. That was kind of them. I said, no, this is a problem I can solve. My brother Matt, he was working in the town of Williamsburg, other side of town, as a mechanic. I said, no problem. I'll just drive across town and have him drill through the seatbelt and get me out. I drive across town. This is back when they had this brand new thing on fast food restaurants, the drive through We'd never had it. McDonald's over there had just put in a drive through I thought I was being clever by pulling through the drive through I got myself a large iced tea. When you're trapped in your car, this is the worst drink you could possibly buy. But I go to the Ford dealership, and there's this huge, long garage full of these big bay doors. They're called. Each mechanic has their own bay. They pull the cars in and out. And I pull up outside of my brother's bay. I see him in there working. And I, I'm like, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but I'm going, Matt, hey, Matt, come here. He looks out from under his car. He's like, you come here. It's like, no, Matt, you understand. I said, you need to come here. He says, get in here, you lazy thing. I said, no, Matt. I said, you got to come here. He's coming away. He comes out there. And the first words out of his mouth were like, where are your clothes? I'm like, I've got my swim trunks on. And I see, so he's like, what? I say, Matt, I'm trapped in my car. And I think he's going to be cool about this. He turns around to the whole shop. Guys, hey, guys, my brother's trapped in his car. Before I knew it, my car is sworn by about 30 greasy mechanics. This is the funniest thing they've ever seen. One guy's like, oh, college boy can't work a seatbelt. Oh, they're having a good time. Some weird guy was pinching me. Purple nurple, purple nurple. I didn't like, didn't like that at all. Some other guy, I think he was trying to sound smart. He goes, well, this must be one of those maternity initiations. <laughs> Fraternity, I said, you mean fraternity? He's like, I'm not the one trapped in my car. <laughs> and see, at this point, I'm thinking, this, none of this is my fault. If there's blame here, it's the Ford Motor Company. They're to blame for me being trapped in my car. But then I did make my one small mistake. I said to myself, 
this can't get any worse. <laughs> These car dealerships, they have a PA system. They have a loudspeaker. Next thing I hear, Ray Bircher's brother's trapped in his car on the south side of the building. Secretary, salesman, the odd customer. I was the new conversation piece, listening to all their little jokes. Where'd you close that? That was the moment. No, that was the day I fell out of love with my first car. Thank y'all. Anthony Bircher with The Day I Fell Out of Love with My First Car. That's quite a... It's a harrowing ordeal. Oh, yeah. I and mean, very public. Do right? you remember the cars that you drove in high school and college? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I totally do. I, I, lear- I learned to drive in a Plymouth Volare. Really? Yeah. Yep. So when I was in high school, to me, a car was just a car. Uh-huh. I was not a snob. If I had a car, I was grateful. That's I just right. needed something that could get me to and from school and uh, to and from the dates that I was trying to line <laughs> up constantly. And I do, I will admit though, as the the more cars I started to drive, the more entitled I felt. Uh, just to give you an example, I started out driving a minivan. It was my grandma's minivan. Sure, but again. Yeah. It'll it's get a car. you there. I'm happy. Please as punch. But then I got my older brother's Honda Del Sol two-seater convertible. Uh, and it was a convertible because you could unlatch the roof and put the roof into the trunk. So, you know, it wasn't like the dramatic, cool-looking roll-down uh, top. And it had a six-disc CD changer. <laughs> and I thought I was the coolest kid. And it was red. Yeah, I took yeah. it to my junior prom. I picked up the girl that I had a crush on. And uh, unfortunately, my senior year, my brother bought it from my parents. And now he was driving it. Oh. And I was stuck with my grandma's minivan. So it was humbling a little bit, right? But I have plenty of stories of driving in cars that malfunctioned or that, you know, stranded me at the airport. Oh, man. And overheating and so much so that – so one of one of my responsibilities in high school was the morning announcements. Oh, yeah. And I had a similar experience in that I remember the day that my car died and it was the last <laughs> time that I ever drove it. And I on the morning announcements, I had this little tribute that I did, and Carly Simon's uh, oh, "Nobody Does It Better" yeah. <laughs> uh, playing in the background, and yeah, I've I I've got plenty of car stories, but again, in the end. To me, a car was just a car, and I was yeah. just grateful to have one. Oh boy, aren't you ever? I think before I got a car, before I before a car was made available to me, I didn't own a car until you know I was a grown up. You mm-hmm. know, but I mm-hmm. but I you know I drove my parents' cars and whatnot, and 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 I think before I got a driver's license, I I sort of dreamed about the cars I might like to have. You yeah. Know? And I thought that I was being very conservative, you know. 
And then when I finally started driving, I drove cars that were much more conservative than any of the cars I'd ever dreamed about, even in my most conservative dreams. Yeah. And that Plymouth Volare, boy, I'll tell you, it it caught fire on the freeway. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) And nobody was hurt. Uh, Good. But but the, nobody was hurt but the Volare. It, yeah. It, it died that kind of death, you know. And maybe a little bit of your pride. And maybe a little <laughs> bit of my pride. That's right. <laughs> you know, speaking of, of cars that you, that you dreamed about, I never had these huge aspirations of I'm going to I'm going to own a Lamborghini Countach. Right. I'm going to drive a Ferrari. I thought there was kind of this feeling of older and Dumpier and more rundown meant cool, right? So <laughs> right. I'm the youngest in my family, and every one of my siblings before me got to drive our family Dodge van. Yeah. This is the this is the vehicle that we have so many memories about. We had the squishy seat where there were yes. so many of us where I had to sit in the little space between the, the driver's seat and the driver passenger seat. And that's where you would fit. And, you know, we'd kind of argue, or who gets the squishy seat, right? We would, on long road trips, we would take out the very back seat, put luggage in there, put pillows and blankets on top, and we would lay down for the entirety of our trip. Oh, yeah. Could never get away with that this yeah. day, right? Um, but I really wanted to drive that vehicle because I was the only one that didn't have that opportunity but as the time got closer for me to start driving, the car started falling apart, and it got to the point where the steering wheel cap had popped off. Oh. And if you wanted to honk the horn, you had to stick these two little wires together. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when you're in an accident situation, that's not really yeah, ideal, yeah. right? Grab the wires, quick. But I, I do have a little bit of a confession. I don't think I ever told my parents until I was, you know, past the statute of limitations, right? And uh, one day, I didn't have my license. I just decided, you know what? I'm just going to get in this van, and I'm just going to drive it down the street and drive it right back up and park it. And that's what I did. <laughs> I was bobbing my head the whole way that I was doing it, and I felt so rebellious. That was oh, kind yeah. of the extent of my rebellion right there. <laughs> And uh, put it in park, and that was the one and only time I got to drive that van because before I turned 16, it was in such disrepair that we sold it, I think, for $1,000. Oh, yeah. We bought a car for a buck. There was a guy in town who had a car, a little Subaru, that he he it was busted, and he was going to give it away, and, and it, some, he was a friend of my dad's, and and my brother said, we'll, we'll, buy that, we'll buy that Subaru from you. And the guy said, well, we'll give me a buck for it. Wow. So we bought it for a buck, <laughs> and my brother fiddled around in the gearbox or something for about an hour, and then that became the car that we, we – my brother and I went to college – Far from home, but in the same at the same university as each other, and so we shared that that car all through college. Really? And yeah, yeah. Little w- little old Subaru. My brother's something of an artist, and so he painted the car with oh, all yeah. kinds of crazy things. And, yeah, you know, I remember so, showing up to work in that car with the skull painted on the side, <laughs> and the you know. But it was a great car, and we loved it, and and we drove it, and drove it, and drove it, and drove it, and, and drove for, it for into years. the ground. Yeah, drove it into the ground. I so another car that I drove was my dad's um, Honda Accord. Yeah, I loved that car. I always felt it was a great car, but I lent it out to a friend of mine when he was in town one time, 
And uh, I was furious to discover that while he was borrowing my car, the car had passed the 200,000 mile mark and I was not the one in the car when that happened. <laughs> oh, gosh. And yeah, yeah I, I don't know if I've ever forgiven him for that. Uh, you know, it's <laughs> it's my 13-year-old who, who wants to drive the Lamborghini. You know? Oh, yeah. He, he's yeah. he's right now making plans for his life and they include driving a Lamborghini. And I say, well, what are you going to do for a living? He says, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon. And I say, all right. Do your homework. <laughs> yeah. And that'll that's that dream is within reach. That's right. Yeah. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. It's fun hearing Jeff's car stories from when he's in high school. We have a lot of stories from Jeff that we like from when he was in high school, including the story of you becoming Mr. Knight. Now the Knights, of course, were the mascot of your high school in Anaheim, California. Catella High School. Yeah. That's right. And there is a Mr. Knight story. Absolutely. Well, first of all, to tie this in with our car talk, the car that I was driving at that time in my life was my grandmother's minivan. (laughs) And uh, I was dating a girl at the time, and I was crazy about her. We got along so well, and she actually asked me out on our first date. So that was new and exciting. <laughs> but I, the excitement kind of wore off uh, when the Mr. Knight competition was coming along because yeah. this was basically the male equivalency to the Miss America pageant That's right. for the senior guys, right? For the Miss Catella High School yeah, pageant. Yeah, and I thought, Oh, I would love to be in this, not necessarily because I want the fame, you know, that the Mr. Knight title does not bring with it, (laughs) but I thought, you know, I'm, I can be entertaining. I might not be the best looking guy. I might not be the guy that all the girls dream about, but I can be entertaining. I can make them laugh. I can win this thing (laughs) if I can just be nominated. I didn't do any campaigning or anything like that. I wasn't going to go that far. Beneath you. Right. But uh, maybe my girlfriend sensed that I wanted to be in this competition because when the nominees were announced and I was one of them, I was so excited. (laughs) She runs up to me in between classes one day and says, oh, my goodness, when we were in class, my friend and I. We took a bunch of the ballots, the blank ballots, and we just put your name on them and shoved them back into the ballot box. And my countenance dropped and I said, I can't believe you did that. Why did you do that? Because it basically put me in an impossible situation, right? Should I go forward with this information or, you know, I kind of like the idea of being nominated. Should I just sit with that? Well, this advisor calls me into her office and says, you wouldn't happen to know anything about this ballot stuffing, would you? And I said, as I'm thinking in my mind, do I turn in my girlfriend or do I take the coward's way out and say, I have no (laughs) recollection of this? Right. And I said, no, I don't know anything about this. (laughs) She said, okay, all right. Minute goes by, she calls me back into her office and she says, I know you're lying. It was your girlfriend that did it. And you're in big trouble because now you've got to sit in front of a a group of your peers and we're going to vote on whether or not you get to stay in the Mr. Knight competition. Oh, a tribunal. So I had to field all these questions, one of which being, how would you feel if you went on to win the Mr. Knight competition? Would you feel guilty about that? Uh, And it was a question that I would have to address later on because I 
ultimately, I was uh, chosen to remain in the competition, and I did go on to win the Mr. Knight competition. Hear that? He won! Uh, He was Mr. Knight! Yes, and... I actually did not date this girlfriend much longer beyond the Mr. Knight competition because it did not sit well with me. And, uh, yeah, I won the competition, lost the girl, and (laughs) I'm sure I still have that crown somewhere. Oh, listen, if if you see Jeff on the street, you can refer to him as we all are referring to him nowadays as Sir Jeff. Yes. Mr. Knight. Or Mr. Jeff. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I'll tell you, the stories that come when we start talking about high school. And, of course, we started talking about high school because we started talking about cars. And we started talking about cars because we listened to this story by Anthony Bircher, The Day I Fell Out of Love with my first car. You may be listening to us in our archive at www.byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You may be taking us with you on your mobile device because you've subscribed to the podcast. Do that, and there's something new for you just about every day from the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Sam Payne. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by the Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.